The reading is from First Kings, chapter 16, at verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Then the Lord, the word of the Lord came to him. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I might go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither was the jug of oil became neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. 
And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Amen. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you and praise you so much for your goodness to us. As Andy has just said, thank you so much that we have your word um, for us in its entirety that we can read and look at tonight. Lord God, I pray that you would be with us. Please speak to us through the power of your word, and may we go away here changed. We pray these things in the strong name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, um, we've had a break from our series in One Kings, a two-week break, so I think it's helpful to do a bit of a recap to remind ourselves of what's been going on and also to to fill the gap of history um, that we sort of missed over the past two weeks between chapter 12, where we finished, and where we are tonight, chapter 16 and 17 of 1 Kings. Do have your Bibles open and have your service sheets open as well. Um, There's points there for you to take some notes on. Now, remember, one king starts on a high, doesn't it? Solomon, the son of David, takes the throne from his famous father, and and he establishes a mighty kingdom. Solomon's Israel, in fact, is the greatest Israel is ever going to be, both in terms of uh, prosperity and physical landmass. And if you remember, Solomon asks for wisdom from God, and God delights in that. And so Solomon's reign is established with wisdom and might and wealth and strength. And this is brought, if you remember, to the highest of high points in chapter 8, where Solomon builds and dedicates this beautiful permanent temple of the living God for him to dwell in. A building that is to remind the people of who God is, to remind the people of God's faithful promises to Abraham and to David being fulfilled. And all seems well, but then sin creeps into this happy nation. In chapter 11, Solomon turns his heart away from the Lord and he turns his love to the thousands of his women that his heart clings to. He, he establishes pagan practices and temples and he establishes pagan gods in the land. And this is truly devastating. And this brings about the downward spiral of the nation of Israel. And this brings us to our big main theme, if you remember, that's been running all the way through this book. For God's covenant promises to God's people to be fulfilled, then God's king must be obedient to God's word. And while Solomon holds on to God and to godly wisdom, and as he listens to the Lord, the nation is functioning as it ought, in repentance and faith and love, all centered around the temple. 
And so the benefits of the promise of blessing are abundant in the land, whereby even the queen from Sheba, as far as Ethiopia in chapter 10, hears of Israel's might and Solomon's brilliance and comes to see the king and she goes away worshipping the God of heaven. That's what Israel was meant to look like. That's what the nation of God's people looks like when God's king is obedient to God's word. They have all the blessings and promise of God fulfilled in abundance, and they are a blessing to others as a consequence. But when Solomon's heart fails, he falls into idolatry, so do the people. And with God's king not being obedient to God's word, then God brings judgment on the people. The borders of Israel are suddenly under threat. The peace of the kingdom is not secure anymore. The throne is vulnerable and the kingdom teeters on the edge of a knife. This is what the nation of God's people looks like when God's king is not obedient to God's word. To the point where God's promises look like they actually no longer exist. Where in chapter 12, the kingdom is ripped almost from the line of David in ruthlessly quick fashion, and the kingdom is now divided. This mighty nation wants the envy of this small part of the world now sitting in division. The northern kingdom, remember, called Israel, with Jeroboam as their king, introducing his own religion and defying immediately the God of heaven. And the southern kingdom called Judah, made up of the lone tribe of Judah and Benjamin. And this one tiny piece of grace is this land of Judah in this whole sorry saga. Where God does have a remnant from the line of David intact. He has not given up on his promises. And we ended, if you remember, with 1 Kings 13 verse 1a. And behold... A man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to King Jeroboam at Bethel. The line of godly kings has failed. But there is now rising through the ranks of God's history men of God, prophets who will speak God's words, who will confront kings and nations for hundreds of years, bringing incredible judgment but also bringing a message of incredible hope and a message of remarkable grace that brings kings and nations to repentance. And that is where we left one kings, turning our sights away, if you like, from the kings themselves and now on to the prophets. And that is exactly where we pick up our story tonight. But before we get there, before we get to Elijah, we do have some business to attend to. Read with me again, um, 1 Kings 16, 29 to 34. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria for 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn. He set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, 
this is a helpful thing for us to look at, verse 29. Um, and verse 29 is actually the standard heading, if you like, for each of the kings that are introduced in, in, in both of these kingdoms throughout um, Kings and Chronicles. And it tells them what their name is, how many years they're going to reign, which king they've sort of come in on from the other kingdom. But the really important bit is the moral statement that the author gives about that king each time. Quite simply, the author will say, this king did evil or good in the sight of the Lord. And you know that more often than not, it is that the king did evil in the sight of the Lord. And here we have Ahab. He has done evil in the sight of the Lord, but he has done more evil than all who were before him. Verse 33, Ahab, in fact, did more to provoke the anger of God than all the kings of Israel who went before him. And that is remarkable. Because the kings of the northern kingdom, Israel, and incidentally, we're just focusing tonight on the northern kingdom of Israel. We'll come back to Judah at another time. All the kings in Israel that went before Ahab were truly wicked. We know what Jeroboam was like. He established his own religion. Then you get Nadab and Basha and Elah and Zimri and Omri. All these kings had done evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam. In fact, under Omri, in chapter 16, verse 21, the sixth king of Israel, we almost have the northern kingdom divided into two again. There was almost three kingdoms. In short, the kings of Israel are an mitigated disaster. I mean, it's a real mess. Evil king after evil king, each worse than the last. And then you come to Ahab, who beats them all. But what does he do? Verse 31. <clears throat> he walks in the sins of Jeroboam by intermarrying with a foreign woman, Jezebel, who, as we'll see later, is the in-house evangelist for Baal worship, if you like. She is quite literally the queen of Baal. And so with her comes all her hatred of God and her desire to establish Baal worship across the whole land. And so, verse 32, Ahab erects an altar for Baal, the most violent and despicable of the pagan gods, in his new capital city of Israel, Samaria. He builds an Asherah pole in verse 34. And then you get this, this bit where Jericho is, is rebuilt and two people die. That's just a reminder of the curse that God, through Joshua, had put on this evil city, that if you try to rebuild it, people will die. Now, there's an obvious theme running along here, isn't there? running all the way from Jeroboam down the line to Ahab, no one is listening to God's word. And the king and the nation is suffering the consequences of that. And it is within this backdrop of there having been seven horrific kings to Judah's one king, of there being rank disobedience and Baal worship in the land, which is pretty much now the official religion, of their being intermarriage with other religions and pagan sacrifices and temple prostitutions, a land of enraged hatred to the God of heaven and to each other, a nation that is itself almost split further in two under the weight of their sin, a nation who built up a cursed city to the loss of life against the warning of God's word. It is within this backdrop that Elijah, the prophet, God's mouthpiece, the bringer of God's word, is introduced. And that brings us to our first point. The word of God that speaks judgment that challenges a king. 
Now, there's a lot of ink spilt over why Elijah so very suddenly burst on the scene here. He sort of seems to come out of nowhere, doesn't he? This is sort of um, um, chapter 17, 1 to 7. Um, It's the first time we've read of Elijah in the Bible, and we know that he's a very important person in the biblical narrative. He's he's not a minor prophet. He's going to play a very important part in biblical history. So why is there no introduction? There's no backstory to him. We don't know anything about him. And that's actually quite rare for someone of Elijah's sort of standard in the Bible. And I think there's a reason for this. You see, after all the bar language of the previous chapters and the increase in sin over the course of what is about 64 years, and with Jezebel coming onto the scene in her capacity as chief evangelist for Baal, and the temple to Baal being built by Ahab and is establishing Baal as the main god of Israel, in all this Baalness, ending in verse 34 of chapter 16, we immediately read in the very next verse, now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab. Elijah. Now, we don't get the hit here because, unfortunately, not many of us read Hebrew. Elijah means, powerfully in this context, my God is Yahweh. Now, what a contrast. Can you see that? I think his introduction is brief, so as to make that contrast. All we need to know about this man at this point is that he is very obviously a follower of an almost forgotten God, Yahweh, the true God of Israel. In the face of a nation and a king that pretty much now solely follows Baal, a man called My God is Yahweh turns up to preach judgment. And the name of the prophet is proven here to have real meaning. This God, Yahweh, will stop the rains, we read in 1 to 7, for many years, and only by the word of his prophet will they come back again. Now, that is a big claim to make, isn't it? What if it doesn't happen? Yahweh is really putting himself out on a limb here, as is his prophet, Elijah, who speaks his word and bears his name and stands before. And so, more importantly then, than the threat of Yahweh's word, is the truth of Yahweh's word. He has to back up his claim, and he does. The rain stops. Elijah, we read here, takes himself away by God's direction as suddenly as he arrived and goes to a brook. And in verse 7, we see that eventually that dries up because there was no rain in the land. Now, stepping aside for a moment, as ever with God, this is no petulant judgment on Israel and the king. This is not spite, something that he releases in a fit of anger. This is something that God has already warned the people of all the way back in Deuteronomy 11. If you turn your hearts away from me, we read, and worship other gods, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain. God in his judgment is being entirely faithful to his word. Can you see that? So this should not come as a surprise to Ahab or to the people of God. And here you can see, as the king does not remain obedient to God's word over time, the people of God are now very much experiencing the effects of the promises of blessing being held back. And this judgment happens and this word comes true because Yahweh is the true God of Israel, not Baal. Baal can actually do nothing in the face of the oncoming famine. And this is actually quite embarrassing 
Because Baal is principally a god of fertility. And more importantly, he is the god of rain. He he is literally the god of rain. If anyone should be able to stop this drought, it should be Baal. Can you imagine that the people, and most certainly the king, going up onto the high places, pleading with Baal to bring back the rain, but to no avail? The only way this drought can be brought to an end is the end of verse 1 of chapter 17. By my word, says Yahweh. Only by the true living word of Yahweh, Israel's true God, will the rain start again. And in chapter 18, verse 41, we see that just happening. God's word brings about rainfall once again in the country. In other words, who is the God of rain? Oh, it's Yahweh, not Baal. Which God does Elijah speak on behalf of? His God, Yahweh, not Baal. Now you see what's going on here. Battle lines are being drawn between Yahweh and Baal. And we, the reader, and then the people and the king, are going to witness over the next few chapters, right up until the end of 1 Kings, this almighty battle taking place. The battle between Yahweh and Baal. And time and time again, God's word will prevail. Time and time again, especially as we will see next week on Mount Carmel, God's words will win. God's word is eminently more powerful than the muteness of a fake God. And in this, our first skirmish of the war, if you like, that we read tonight, only Elijah, speaking God's word, can bring back the rain, not Baal. Which is why it's interesting what happens to Elijah as soon as he delivers this prophetic word of judgment. He is sent away. The one thing that will rectify the situation, the one word that will bring rain, has been removed from the king. God allows the people and their king to see what it's really like to live under Baal, the fake god of rain. Elijah, verse 3, by God's command, is sent away, and in that action, judgment through the prophet as he challenges a king is brought on the people. God's word has been removed from the king. But it's not just been removed from the king, but it's also been removed from the land of Israel altogether. And that brings us to our second point. The word of God that speaks provision that saves a widow. 17, 8 to 16. Read these verses with me. 8 to 16. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a woman was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in the vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterwards, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. 
The jar of the flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Now, Elijah is sent to Zarephath in Sidon. And this is really important. We've seen Sidon before in this passage, back in verse 31 of chapter 16. Ahab marries Jezebel, who is the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. So Zarephath is not in Israel. God's word then, the only word that can stop this drought, has left the country. Elijah is in a foreign land. But not just any foreign land, but the land of Baal itself. You see, verse 9 is actually a crazy verse. God is asking Elijah to do something incredibly dangerous. First, God says that Elijah needs to go to Zarephath. Now, consider what Elijah's name means and where he is. Every time someone inside in the home of Baal would have asked his name, Elijah answers, oh, my name is my God is Yahweh. He's on a very dangerous footing. Going to Zarephath for someone like Elijah is like a Celtic supporter wrapped in green and white being asked to sit in the ranger stand at an old firm match. Thank you very much. It took me ages to come up with that one. I know, I'm pleased as well. It works. But secondly, God then says, not only do I want you to go to Zarephath, into this enemy territory, if you like, but I will bring you to a widow whose job it is to feed you, Elijah. Now, widowhood at this time was a tragic state of affairs. It didn't just mean that you lost your husband. It was a title that signified utter destitution. And you'll have picked up from the fact in this passage that Elijah is actually kept alive and sustained in very unusual ways. In verses 4 to 6, God uses ravens to feed Elijah, dirty creatures that are in fact banned in the book of the law from being touched by a Jew. And here, God moves from using ravens, uh, um, from using ravens for, to a widow to feed Elijah. And as odd as those two modes of sustenance are, look at the activity behind them. Verse 4, I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Verse 9, I have commanded a widow to feed you there. You see, the same word that commands rain not to fall in Israel is the same word that commands these incredibly unlikely sources to sustain the prophet. God, as we have seen all the way through this book, is completely in control, even when it looks like he really isn't. See, if the reader was wondering whether God's word is actually effective, whether God's word would actually bring about rain in the land, here's proof of his incredible power. It brings about sustenance in the middle of incredible famine from these two weird sources. But look down at our passage. What happens with this widow? Well, Elijah finds her much as you would expect to find a destitute widow gathering sticks from the dirt to make her fire for her her meal. Elijah gets into conversation, discovers it's her last meal for her and her son with the last of her flour and oil that she has, and then that's it. They're going to die. Whether the famine and drought has spread to Sidon, we don't know, probably, but her situation is bleak. Then Elijah says this, okay, but with your last bit of flour and oil, can you first make me a cake, and then can you feed you and your son? That's very forward of him. But it's wrapped up in Yahweh's most beautiful preface. Don't be afraid. Why doesn't she need to be afraid? Because, verse 14, thus says the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Now, at this point, the woman has two options presented to her, doesn't she? 
She either listens to this man and does what he says, believing in the God of Yahweh in this land of Baal, or she doesn't. And she protects her last meal and she walks away. Well, this woman, having never met this man before, having possibly never heard of Yahweh before, takes what is in fact an extraordinary step of faith. She believes in Elijah and in the word of this God, and she goes for it all in. Quite literally, I'm all in. If I'm wrong, we are literally going to die. The stakes are that high. But her trust in God's word alone is what tips her hand. And so Elijah is fed, fulfilling God's promise that a widow would feed him. And so the widow is saved, fulfilling God's promise to her, as she responds to this God, not in fear, but in faith. Now, don't forget what this miracle actually achieved. It did not achieve, for this woman and her son, an enormous volume of food that she could hoard for years. No. It actually only achieved enough for each individual day. Every single day, she would have emptied the jar of flour and the jug of oil. Every single day, making one meal for the three of them, then going to bed with possibly an empty jar and an empty jug, waiting, hoping, trusting in God's word of promise that they will be refilled again in the morning. And every morning, she would wake up, peer into the jar and into her jug, and see the evidence of a powerfully faithful God at work. You see what's going on here? God's word of promise to this destitute woman has brought about an act of faith. And this woman does not just believe in God's word for one day, but has to trust in it every single day. That's what Israel and Judah were meant to always be doing. That's what the king of Israel was always meant to be doing. Can you see? Isn't it incredible that in the middle of this book of kings and nations and gods, it is a widow who shows us and the nation of Israel how to really live as children of God. How very like God to take a lone man, Elijah, to confront a king, to take a bunch of dirty birds to feed a prophet, to take a destitute pagan widow to shame a nation. Elijah has to go outside of Israel to find this Sidonian woman who shows Israel up, if you like, to the point of embarrassment where she trusts in God's promises every single day for God's provision for her very life. And the question is, are we doing that? Having seen what the promises of God really look like in Christ, with all the help of hindsight of what Christ has achieved for us on the cross, with all of what we know this in the Old Testament was pointing towards, Are we living as Christians in a state of total, complete dependence on the living word of God? The word of God that says to the believer, don't be afraid. I've got this. The word of God that says, if you trust me and follow me and depend entirely on me, no matter how bats it looks, my promise of everyday eternal blessing will be yours. And Don't hear what I'm not saying. We're not talking about life free of suffering, a life of wealth, of stress-free peace. This widow was still a widow. But she is someone who is entirely dependent on God's word every single day for her provision. Are we living our lives with that attitude to God's word? 
depending on him to get me spiritually and physically through every single day. Waking up every day like this widow, seeing his promises fulfilled and singing, your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Do I read God's word every day in order that I can live like this? Do I delight in his word like the psalmists say? Do I, in the midst of real difficulty, turn to the word of God? Do I, in real difficulty, turn to the God of this word, to Yahweh, who has promised to sustain us and to protect us, and yes, in times of real, desperate suffering, has promised to never let us go? The God who has proven time and time again to us in his history, this very passage notwithstanding, which he has written down for us in his word, the Bible, that he absolutely has the power to do and to complete and to remain faithful to absolutely everything that he has ever said. Do you live like that is true? Who is your God, Israel? This passage is screaming. Is it Baal? who only lets this woman down and cannot bring rain on the earth? Or is it Yahweh, who saves by the power of his word? Who is your God, charmers, we hear today? Is it the God of materialism, wealth, and comfort, which will only let you down? Or is it Yahweh, who saves by the power of his word? Is the word of God the altar I am actually willing to die on like this widow? Or would I rather find my salvation and my security in the source of my everyday life and provision somewhere else? As one commentator says, in dying or in facing our last meal, a point with which we will all get to, has faith anything else left to stand on than the word of Yahweh, the God of Israel? But moving on, finally we come to the word of God that speaks life, that raises the dead. Read with me these last few verses to the end of the chapter from verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself out upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, And that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. It's quite interesting seeing the ebb and flow of these passages in 1 Kings, isn't it? We sort of go from this widow trusting in the steady provision of God's word every morning, and then seemingly against God's character, her son ups and dies. Why is this? Why does God prove he's a God who sustains life in order to take it away? Well, principally here, because there is something deeper to show. 
Even as this widow and Elijah himself doesn't yet know it. Now look at the reaction from both of them, the widow and Elijah. The widow, having spent time with Elijah for a while at this point, freshly released, we guess, from, from the religion of Baal, a new convert to this providing God. She seems to understand that this bad thing of her son's death has come from the same source as the good thing that has happened with her provision of food. Verse 18. What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. She both recognizes that she is sinful in the eyes of this powerful Yahweh, and also that he has the power and the right to take a life. She sees that. As does Elijah. Look at his reaction. Verse 20. O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? He doesn't question the widow's theology. He knows she's right, that God has had the final say in this boy's life. Both know the power that God has over life itself. What the widow has not yet understood and is about to see is the power that God has over death itself. Note what Elijah does. He turns the anguished words of the widow directed at him in verse 18 into a desperate prayer of dependence and directs them at Yahweh in verse 20. And as Elijah stretches himself out over this child three times and speaks over him the prayer of Yahweh, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. The spoken prayer of the prophet bringing about the life-giving power of God's word. Now, before we go into the outcome of this episode, can you see what is going on here in terms of the powerful word of God? God's power is able to cross a border into a foreign land to transform a widow's life. But now God's power has crossed the greater border of the underworld to transform a son's death. Again, who is the greater God in this battle that has been drawn up? Is it Baal or is it Yahweh? Baal can't even speak. And yet this Yahweh can bring the dead to life. This Yahweh works in Baal's territory. He's not confined by human borders. This Yahweh works in death's territory. He is not confined by spiritual borders. Does this widow see that? Absolutely she does. Verse 23. See your son lives, says Elijah. Verse 24. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. You see, as we draw to a close, what is the take-home message here? Well, more than the prayer of the prophet, more even than the faith of the woman, the one thing time and time again that we are hit with is the power of God's word and the incredible transformation that that word brings to real life. This Yahweh was who the people of drought-ridden Israel need to turn to in help of their hour of need. This widow is a picture of exactly what Israel should be doing. But it is not the widow who captures our attention, really. It is the God who deals with her. And as we see over the course of the next few weeks, as we look on the incredible acts that these prophets achieve, and the terrible words of judgment they speak, and the glorious words of grace and life that they preach, we find it is not them that we're looking at, it is Yahweh. Elijah's name itself drags us away from Elijah, points me to Yahweh. This widow's salvation takes me away from her and points me to Yahweh. 
And that has to be where we finish tonight. Because where do we see Yahweh with no greater clarity? Where do we see the power of God's word bringing life to the dying and better still breaking the back of death for the living? It has to be surely the person of Jesus Christ. The word of God. As we see Jesus in the New Testament, thousands of years after this incident, we see a man who controls the weather as he stills a storm by the power of his words. We see a man who speaks judgment by the power of his words. We see a man who provides the 5,000 hungry souls with food by the power of his words. Get this. We see a man who goes into Syrophoenicia, a place that used to be called Sidon, and talks to another woman at a well, except not a widow this time, but someone who has had seven husbands. And instead of offering limitless flour and oil, he offers limitless water, leaving yet another woman going away, rejoicing in Yahweh by the power of his word. We see a man who points to the grave after weeping in the bitter face of death and raises Lazarus from the tomb by the power of his word. But ultimately... We see a man who died on a cross, who descended into the grave and by the power of the word, the power of almighty God the Father, working in the person of Jesus God the Son, we see this man rising from the grave, paving the way of true limitless life for all who will believe in his name. We see him paving the way of true life for all those who will look into the face of Jesus and say the words of the widow, now I know, Jesus, that you are the man of God. And that the word of Yahweh in your mouth is truth. You see, just as Jesus is the greater king, something that we have been looking at over the past few weeks, Jesus is also the greater prophet. He has the final word. He literally has the final say. It is finished. There's nothing left to be said or done. He does everything that Elijah does here and more. But instead of providing for the one boy or for the one widow or for the one nation, Jesus, by the power of God's word, brings salvation and hope and prosperity for eternity to the whole of the earth. In a time of desperation for Jesus, as everyone around him was deserting him, as everyone who he thought were actually with him had left him, he turns to his 12 disciples in a moment of real humanity and exclaims with controlled exasperation, Are you going to leave me too? And Peter immediately responds in a fit of extraordinary clarity for him and says immediately, to whom else do we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. And that's our take-home point. It has to be. Where else was this widow meant to turn to? She had to turn to the word of truth found in the mouth of the prophet or she was dead. Where else is Israel and this king meant to turn to? They have to turn to the word of truth found in the mouth of this prophet or they are dead. Who do I turn to? I have to turn to the word of truth found in the mouth of the prophet Jesus Christ or I am dead. Do we know that's true tonight? This is what Israel wasn't doing. But this is what we are able to do now in this very moment. 
In the middle of our desperate mess of our lives, we're able to turn to him who has the words of eternal life and be accepted as a child of God, made right for an eternity with him because God said I could. Because God said in John 6, 37, then anyone who comes to him will not be cast out. Because God never lies. He never goes back on his word. You see, the only person I identify with in this passage is not Elijah. He's not me in this passage. I'm not meant to look at Elijah and see myself. I look at the widow, and I look at the desperate nation of Israel, and that is where I see myself. Destitute and malnourished, living as a pagan, worshipping an earthly god that is silent and impotent. And so, therefore, I also see that there are only two options available to me. Do I follow Israel and turn my back on the word of God, the only thing that will give me peace and satisfaction, the only thing that will stop the rains of my death and hunger instead for Baal and the God of this age, hoping that he comes up with something? Or do I follow the widow who sees the word of God for what it really is, life-giving, death-defeating, sustaining, providing undeniable truth? A word that saves, brings conviction of sin, and creates a believer in the God of Yahweh, who will not give up on his promises and who will never stop providing and saving through the power of his word. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father God, we thank you and praise you so much for the power of your word. Thank you for um, what we read tonight in Elijah. Thank you for the way that your word sustains and brings real life, real transformation in life. Heavenly Father, we praise you that we are able to see this with real clarity tonight as we look at Jesus, who was the final word of the Father. Heavenly Father, thank you that in him we have real life, real eternal life, and real limitless water, real satisfaction, even in the depths of real despair. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are this word. Lord God, we we pray that um, we would be very much convicted by this tonight. Father, help us to be reading your word every day so that we become dependent on it and not on anything else. Heavenly Father, above all, may we go away from here more in love with Jesus, wanting to live out this incredible walk with you and wanting to be able to tell people about this incredible news. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.